When I was about fourth or fifth grade, we had a, a famous Easter weekend for my family. We were at my parents' house. We had my uncles, my aunts, my grandmother there, about my 124,000 cousins were there as well. I know some of y'all can probably relate when I say that. The house was full of people, and the highlight of that Easter was going to be an Easter egg hunt outside. And so all the kids were getting ready. The dads went out there. They scattered all the eggs everywhere that people had brought. And then they said, ready, set, go. And it was like an anthill had been kicked. I mean, kids going everywhere, digging in the dirt. They're like, why would we put, ant put eggs in the dirt? We're not putting eggs under the ground. I mean, hedges, bushes. We went everywhere looking for these little big bits of candy inside of an egg. And we got done, and we came inside. My grandmother said, did any of y'all find a golden egg? We went, golden egg? I said, no, I don't, I don't think anybody has a golden egg. And she said, uh-oh. You see, I wanted to make some of the eggs special. And so in that one golden egg, I put a $20 bill. <laughs> we were gone. We were back outside. We were looking everywhere at that point. Even the adults, our parents didn't know my grandmother did that. So even the adults were turning to each other and going, maybe we want to go outside and go look for this, this egg that's hidden somewhere. And to make a long story short, nobody found it. To this day, there is a golden egg, plastic egg, buried with a $20 bill somewhere on my parents' property. I'm sure it's covered with something at this point. You know, Easter can be a lot of fun. You have the Easter egg hunts. You have the family getting together. But when we look at Easter, we're reminded that the, the glory of Easter and what makes Easter great is not the presents or the candy or the toys or the Easter egg hunts. It's the fact that we are celebrating the fact that the Son of God himself came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, and he rose from the grave three days later. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can look at a tomb, and there's no body in the tomb. The tomb is completely empty, proving that Jesus is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and that what he said about himself, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no one gets to the Father except through him, is true. And that's why we celebrate. We celebrate that we have a Savior who is not distant from us or dead, but he is alive, he is risen, he is living, and he is ruling because of Easter Sunday. The thing about Easter when we look at it is we like and we celebrate, right, we should celebrate the salvation aspect of what Jesus did, that he died on the cross for us, paid the penalty for our sins, was buried and rose from the grave to defeat death. And we think about that and we celebrate our salvation and the fact that God forgave us in eternal life. But we forget that Easter has another aspect of it. That Jesus didn't just rise from the dead so that we can go to heaven and that's it. But Jesus lives today so that we can live today. Jesus rose from the grave so that we can live on purpose for God, for the glory of God, like Jesus lived for the glory of God. And the call is that if we call ourselves Christians, which literally means little Christs or like Christs, then we should not just celebrate Easter for the fact that we go to heaven, but we should celebrate Easter for the fact that God has given us a purpose and a mission to be conformed to the image of his son and to live not just as people who take the title of Christian, 
but to actually live like little Christs in our communities. And so when we ask the question then, how does Easter talk to us about our lives as Christians today and not just the future, we ask the question, well, what did Jesus do? And that's how passages like Matthew 9, 35 through 38, can be a great help to us. In the book of Matthew, prior to this passage, in the first several chapters, like 7, 8, most of 9, Jesus has been doing miracles, he's been teaching, and has been all describing who Jesus is and his, the people's reaction to Jesus. But it changes in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus' ministry is going to take a shift, and he's going to begin to focus more on modeling for his disciples and teaching his disciples and training his disciples on how they should live. And so it's going to be less about Jesus doing just miracles and teaching the masses and more about Jesus' modeling for his immediate disciples and for you and me, how we're supposed to live as his disciples. And it goes all the way through chapter 11. In chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, is the very first one of this. Because in this passage, these short verses, we see Jesus' hands, we see Jesus' heart, that we're supposed to be modeling too, if we take the name Christian. So let me read for you first, just verse 35. It says that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. And every sickness. Verse 35 describes the things that Jesus was doing, the acts that he did. The tense in the Greek there doesn't describe something that was happening once, like he did that and it was over. But the tense in the Greek purposely describes something that was a constant activity of his or a continual habit of his. It's almost like background information. It's almost like as Jesus went about, he was going through villages, he was going through cities, and everywhere he went, he was cons consistently and constantly doing three separate things. And as Christians, we are called then, as the body of Christ, to also be consistently doing these three acts and being the hands of Christ in our villages and communities too. So what is it that we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Well, first, it says Jesus was teaching in their synagogues. The synagogue was the place that the Jewish people would go to on their Sabbath. Every city had a synagogue. Um, it, it was a, the Jewish equivalent of church. And so Jesus' habit was, if it happened to be the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogue of whatever city he was in. And being a traveling teacher, they would hand him a scroll, and Jesus would take a book of the Old Testament. We see this in Luke chapter 4. He would take the book of an Old Testament, he would open up that book, he would read a passage from Scripture, and then he would explain and teach people what that passage of the Old Testament meant. And that was Jesus' consistent habit every week, that Jesus was consistently, no matter where he was at or what he was doing, taking Scripture and explaining it and applying it to people. And as Christians, that's supposed to be our consistent habit, too. We're supposed to be the hands of Christ by consistently teaching people scripture. So my challenge is, who is your one person that you can be consistently teaching scripture to? This passage doesn't say that you have to be a pastor or a missionary or a Bible study teacher in the church to make this happen. It's not saying just the spiritual elites are the ones that are supposed to be teaching scripture to people. It's saying as a, as a 
picture as he begins to model for his disciples what everybody who claims they're a Christian are supposed to do. He says one of the things if you claim to be a Christian to do is you're supposed to be teaching somebody what the Bible says. Who's the one person you could be teaching the Bible to? It might be somebody younger than you, a niece, a nephew, brother, a sister. It could be a friend. It could be a co-worker. It could be, um, it could be a granddaughter, a grandson. But seize the moments when they say, golly, it feels like life is just chaotic. Seize the moment to say, you know what, it's not chaotic because we serve a God who's in control. Seize the moments where they say, I just don't have any hope in what's going on right now. And say, look, I know that situation might seem hopeless, but we do have hope in a living God who rose from the grave. It doesn't matter if you can't quote scripture back at people because you're not a pastor. Who is one person that you are consistently teaching scripture to? Well, that was the first thing that Jesus was doing. But, and then the second one, it says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Everywhere he was going, as he was going through all the seas and villages, he consistently proclaimed the gospel. The gospel is literally the good news. What's, what's the good news about? It's the good news that God's kingdom has come to earth. It's the good news that because of Jesus, that to get into God's kingdom, all we have to do is repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus, and we can go into God's kingdom. That's good news. And it says, no matter where Jesus was at, no matter what he was doing, he was making sure as he was going through these villages that he was consistently proclaiming the gospel and the good news to somebody. And that's our challenge today, too. If you say you are a little Christ, a Christian, are you consistently being Christ's hands by proclaiming the gospel to someone? Who's the one person in your life that you can tell about Jesus. In our church, we have this cross situated over here. We've been challenging people to make a commitment and say, I'm going to take one person in my life that needs a relationship with Jesus, and I'm going to put their name on that cross, signifying that by the end of the year, I'm going to talk to them about their relationship with Jesus. Have you put a name on that cross? If not, maybe after the service, put one up there. Make that commitment to tell somebody about Jesus. If you have put a name up there, how's it going? Have you, have you forgotten about it or are you trying? It really isn't that hard to get into a gospel conversation. In the next several weeks, starting this Wednesday, we're going to be going through a series on Wednesday night that I'm going to hope to encourage you and equip you to do evangelism. But I'll give you a little snippet of it right now. All it takes to start a gospel conversation with somebody is three questions. You ask them how their family do. And you let them talk. And you ask them about their religious or church experiences in the past. You let them hear, hear them talk. And then the third question is you ask if they know what the Bible says about having a relationship with God in heaven. And in three questions, you can conversationally get into, a, into something with somebody that doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like you're just knocking on the door yelling on them because you ask them about their family, you ask them about their experience and their thoughts, you ask them about their background, and you heard what they had to say, and now you can open up and say, hey, I've got good news, what Scripture says. But the challenge of this pastor is to say, if we are Christians and we should be modeling Christ's hands, then that includes each individual person 
consistently proclaiming the good news of Jesus as you go through your village and your city. But there's one more, and it says that he was healing every sickness and every disease. The third thing Jesus was doing, he was doing works of compassion. You know, back then they didn't have, well, they had hospitals, but they weren't great hospitals, you know. They, they didn't really have great hospitals back then. They didn't have psychiatrists. They didn't have counselors like we do today. And so the way people needed, they needed physical help. They needed psychological help. They needed spiritual help, as we see. And so when Jesus was going around, he saw the needs of people, and he did works of compassion to help the needs of the people at the moment. In fact, the word healed there is literally to serve somebody, not just to heal, but to just serve somebody. And what we see in this passage of Jesus is that as he goes through his normal life, this, again, this is not what he does on Sundays only, but as he goes through every day of his life, no matter what village he happens to be in that day, or no matter what city he happens to be encountering on each day, he always is sure to combine teaching scripture with evangelistic passion, with works of compassion. Our church does a great job of doing those last one. And if you're not involved in that, if you want help, you know, I've got some examples for you. One of those is we do a homebound ministry. And it's an awesome ministry to people who can't get out of their house. And if you want to get involved in that and help with that, come talk to me. We partner with uh, Sleep in Heavenly Peace, which is an organization that makes beds for children that don't have beds. And if you want to talk about how to get involved in that, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. If you have some other idea in your head of, and you see a need in our community and you're like, I'd love to do something to help that need in our community, tell me about it. I'd like to hear about it. But we just got to make sure that we do what Jesus did. We can't divorce works of compassion with the spreading of the gospel and teaching. We've got to be doing all three. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that we ultimately see this aspect of him on Easter Sunday on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was obeying and fulfilling and teaching scripture. On the cross, Jesus was demonstrating to us how bad of a passion he had for lost people to be saved. And on the cross, Jesus was showing his compassion and need to help our worst problem, which is sin. And so when we look at Easter and we remember Easter and we see the cross, we're reminded of how Jesus fulfilled all three of these. And so when we look at what Jesus did, when we look at the acts that Jesus had, and we ask ourselves if we as Christians are supposed to act like Jesus, the way we need to look at them is look at Jesus' hands, the nail-scarred, bloody hands on that cross. Ashley's father, he has rough hands. They're strong hands, and they're rough hands. If you ever shake his hand, you'll notice that. His fingers got a lot of muscle in them. He's got calluses all over them. A lot of times he'll even have dirt on his hands. Now, without me even telling you what he does, take a guess in your mind what kind of work that he probably is involved in. Because I would bet me just describing those things, you could probably get pretty close. Because right now he does a lot of perk tests. And in a perk test, you take an auger and you turn it and you dig up holes out of the dirt. Now, you might not be able to get exactly what he was doing, but I bet when you were thinking about that, you thought something pretty close. What he does makes a mark on his hands that other people can see. What do your hands look like? Whose hands do people see when they look at you?
Because when we look at Jesus and we see how Jesus acted, we see the ultimate example of somebody who served, taught scripture, and proclaimed the gospel and had compassion for people and went all the way down to the nail-scarred hands on the cross. Do people see Jesus' hands when they see you? Or they see someone else's hands? So that's Jesus' hands. That's what he did. That's what we as Christians should be modeled to do. But then now look at how Jesus felt. Verse 36, it says, Seeing the crowd, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. We saw Jesus' hands. Now we see Jesus' heart. At first, he saw people. Jesus didn't ignore people. He didn't glance over people. He didn't just let people go by. But Jesus noticed people, and he saw people. And look what happened. Look at his heart when he saw people. It said he had compassion. The word compassion there literally used to mean to have like a movement in your gut or a movement in your stomach. And even though that the physical idea of actually having a literal stomach or gut issue went away by the time this word was used, the idea could be the same. It's a gut level concern for people, a gut, gut level interest for people, a gut level passion for people. And why does Jesus, when he sees people, no matter what their rebellion was, no matter what their sin was, no matter what their awfulness was, no matter, no matter what their background was, why is it that he could see compassion on them? It's because he could see behind all the rebellion by the sinfulness, it says the people were distressed and they were dispirited. And that's how he saw the people. He saw them through their hearts. The word distress there literally meant to mangle something or to rend something apart. To tear something up like an animal would tear up a piece of prey. And the word dispirited there meant to cast something on the ground until it like flat on the ground with the implication that it was probably done violently. He said when Jesus saw people, he saw they were distressed. He saw that they were dispirited. And behind their lifestyle, he therefore had compassion for them like sheep without a shepherd. The, um, the shepherd, sheep need a shepherd. Or they, uh, they get in a lot of trouble. You know, sheep, they, if they eat up one piece of land... A lot of times won't go looking for another piece of land. They'll just hang around until they starve. Sheep, if they run out of water in one place of water, they won't go places to look for water, or they won't even look. If they find water, they won't eat it unless it's perfect water, and they'll thirst to death. Even now, sheep, domestic sheep, they don't shed fur, and so if they don't get cut, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger until giant poof balls. And that's actually what happened to a sheep in New Zealand one year. His name was Shrek. Shrek was part of a 17,000 herd sheepfold. And every year the shepherds would bring them in so they could shear them and make wool out of them. And it was for the sheep's good too because otherwise they don't lose that. Well, Shrek, he decided that one day that he wasn't going to get sheared. And so he went off and he found a cave somewhere. And nobody noticed that he left because there were 17,000 other sheep. There were so many of them that the shepherds didn't notice that he was gone. But not only did he leave for that one day, he liked it in the cave, and he stayed there for six years. Nobody even knew where he was for six years. 
And when the shepherds finally went and found Shred, they didn't even think he was a sheep because he looked so awful. He could barely walk. He could barely make noises. He could barely eat. He could barely talk. His fur was so huge and mangled that he looked just like a black mess. He had so much on his face and his legs, like I said, that he couldn't even go anywhere. He was hot. He was panting. He was in a state of extreme distress. And so the shepherds brought Shrek in, and they shaved him and took care of him for the first time in six years. And they shaved off 60 pounds of wool. That's like three Josie Janes, my daughter. 60 pounds of wool. That's enough to make 20 full men's suits. 20. Jesus says that when he looks at people, he says he sees them as sheep that have no shepherd. He sees behind the dirt, behind the grunge, behind the rebellion that makes them go away, and he sees them being distressed, he sees them being dispirited, and he sees them as a need for a shepherd. And that's how we are called as Christians to see people too. We are to model Jesus' heart for people. You know, do you see the distress of the people in the valley? Do you see how people might be dispirited and thrown down in the villages and cities that you go through? Do you have compassion and care and look behind the grunge to see those who are mangled and rent apart and thrown on the ground, and do you have compassion for those people? Because Jesus says that we are to have the same heart as his heart. And here's the awesome thing about Jesus. His compassion for sheep like us today wasn't just a feeling he felt toward us, but it was something that drove him to do something for us. In Luke, in that book of John, he tells us, he said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd laid down his life for a sheep. Jesus' compassion for us led him to die on the cross for us, led him to be rose from the grave for us. Jesus cared enough and had enough compassion for the lost sheep that he was willing to even sacrifice his life so one more lost sheep could be brought back into the fold. So having compassion like Jesus' heart means sacrifice. It means you might have to sacrifice some of your time instead of rushing home after the grocery store so you can have a little conversation with somebody else that needs help, needs a little bit of the gospel, needs a little biblical teaching. Mind you, it means you have to sacrifice a nap or your favorite show so you can come to the church to engage some outreach activities or things we're doing either with on the outreach meetings or with the kids or with the youth. It might mean sacrificing something you love in the church so that other people outside the church can have a desire to come inside the church. You cannot die for the sins of someone else. But to model the heart of Jesus means to sacrifice what you can so there can be one more sheep brought into the fold. So as believers, we are to model Christ and we saw his hands, we're supposed to model his hands by teaching scripture consistently, proclaiming the gospel consistently, and doing works of compassion consistently. And we're supposed to model Jesus' heart by having sacrificial compassion for lost sheep. And then lastly, we see Jesus' challenge to us today. It says, verse 36, seeing the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Verse 37, Jesus shifts metaphors to one of there being a flock with sheep, to the one being there's a harvest and plentiful. In verse 37, Jesus makes two observations. The first is this, that the harvest is plentiful. The picture there is of a cornfield or a wheat field, and you go out there and look, and every single stalk is healthy. There's not a dead one around. Every single one looks like it's been watered perfectly. Every single one, every chance it has, has a chance to have a piece of fruit sticking out from it, and that fruit doesn't just stick out. Man, it's lush, it's good, it's healthy, it's ready to be picked. It's just, it's not just a normal harvest. Of the, it's a plentiful harvest. There's things everywhere to go. Jesus says, hey, the harvest is plentiful, but that leads him to a second observation. Because you guys that know about farming know that when a fruit is good, you don't have forever to pick it. That there's a limited time window where that fruit is perfect. And if you wait too long, even good fruit eventually goes bad and you can't get it off the plant. So he says the harvest is plentiful. But the problem is the workers are few. That's the second observation. He says the problem is not that there's not people out there. The problem is that not, it's not that there's not enough bountiful harvest to be plucked. He says the problem is fruit's going bad because there's not enough workers doing the harvesting. Now, I want to notice, do you notice something about verse 37? Whose harvest it says it is? It says in verse 38, it's the Lord of the harvest, and it's his harvest. In other words, if our community is the field and the people are the harvest, we are not the owners of this harvest. We are not the owners of this valley. We are not the owners of our, where our house is located. We are not the owners of this church. We are not the owners of our jobs. We are not the owners of our classes. We are not the owners of our teams. It says the, it's the Lord who owns the harvest. It's the Lord who's in control of the harvest. And the problem is that fruit in that harvest is burning not because the fruit is not ready to be picked, but because the workers have not gone out to pick the fruit. And the time is being passed, and it's too late. And so the challenge he gives to his disciples, to us, is in verse 38. Beg the Lord of the harvest that more workers will go out. The word beseech there literally means to plead, to beg God. And the word sent out there is interesting too because it means to literally, in other places it means to throw out or expel or kick people out. It's actually used of demons coming out of people in other places of the Bible. To kick somebody out, to throw somebody out. In the reference to workers, it was the idea of workers who are lazy and idle, not really doing anything, and the, the manager coming by and setting a fire under them so they get up and start doing the work like they're supposed to. He says, beg, plead with the Lord of the harvest. That there be more workers with Christ's hands and Christ's hearts for his harvest. Because he says there are fruit that are being burned with the reeds, not because they weren't ready to be picked, but because there weren't enough workers willing to go work for it. 
And so, that's the main takeout. That's the thing I want you to take away today. We need to ask God for more workers who have Jesus' heart in his hands for his harvest. Jesus even died on the cross and rose from the grave so that one more fruit could be brought into God's kingdom. And now it's our turn to be the workers of Christ with his hands and his heart so that if a fruit gets burned, it's because it never was ready to be picked and not because the workers weren't ready to go. And so, in the next few moments, we are going to have an invitation time, and I'm going to give you a chance to do just that. If you call yourself a Christian, I'm going to challenge you during the invitation to call out to God and ask God if he would please send more workers into the harvest who have his heart and who have his hands. But I do have to warn you that if you pray that prayer, be ready for God to speak to you about your heart and your hands. And if you're scared for God to speak to you about your heart and your hands, why is that, do you think? I also want to talk to you that maybe you came here this morning and you came to church because it's Easter and that's what you're supposed to do on church. You're supposed to come to church on Easter. I want to speak to you specifically to say and let you know and remind you that Jesus loves you as a sheep. He loves you as a person. Jesus, the reason we celebrate Easter is because Jesus died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, and he was buried and rose from the grave so that we can have eternal life and a relationship with God. That's why we celebrate Easter. And the way to receive that gift is simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that, come talk to me too. What an awesome day that you can celebrate a risen Savior as one of his own. So after I pray, you